Hey friends, this is Caitlin Beatty. Roxy and I are delighted to be back for a special summer series of Saved by the City. And for this four-part series, we will really be talking about the topic of celebrity in the church. You might say that we have a critical view of the role that celebrity plays in the church. I recently wrote a book called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. And we thought we'd take this special summer series to draw out some of the themes that I really didn't get to delve into as much as I wanted to in the book. So for the next four episodes, join us as we dive into the topic of celebrity in the church. Roxy, the summer is almost over, which is hard to believe. So what is left on your summer of 2022 bucket list? Oh, I don't even want to think about how the summer is almost over, but I have a trip to Miami coming up and I'm excited about that. Mm. Although it's it's going to be so hot. Muy caliente. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Would you ever go to a nude beach? Uh, You mean, you assume I haven't already gone to a nude beach? Sorry. (laughs) Let me rephrase. Um, Have you been to a nude beach? And if so, did you partake in it? I have not been to a nude beach other than I've been to Europe. And I did not during the day, but I have done my share of skinny dipping. What about you? Well, one thing that is definitely on my summer bucket list is going to the semi-nude beach in the Rockaways called Fort Tilden. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. But I'm intrigued, (laughs) which makes it sound really (laughs) creepy. (laughs) It's just something in New York that I have not experienced yet that I am curious about. Well, I look forward to the dispatch after you go. From Religion News Service, this is a special summer series of Saved by the City. I'm Caitlin Beatty, and I am recording this fully clothed. And I'm Roxy Stone. And me too. Well, speaking of semi-nudity... I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief, best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian, Jamar Tisby. They've answered every question definitively such that there's no more room for mystery, for questioning, for curiosity. That rigidity is really what I think hampers the witness of evangelicals today. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Have you noticed that there is a proliferation of butts on Instagram these days? (laughs) I have definitely noticed a lot of focus on butts. And I have to say it can kind of be jarring when the person's bio also says, this is all for Jesus. Like, both butt cheeks are for Jesus? (laughs) This is all of it. All of it is for him. It's hard to talk about this without sounding like you're judging people. And I don't judge anybody for being proud of their body. But there is something a little bit like you are revealing your full butt. And also you have a verse from Philippians in your bio. (laughs) And I don't exactly know how to square these things. Instagram is 
a weird place. And the whole Instagram influencer culture has become so strangely... Like, the lines just feel very blurred between what people are doing. Like, they're maybe promoting a book Mm. or maybe they're promoting a lifestyle or maybe they're promoting some clothing. If it's the Christian influencer thing, it's, like, also wrapped up around, like promoting Jesus. I don't always know what I'm looking at or like what Mm. the motive is here, you know? Well, the use of the word promoting, I Mm. think that that word Mm. is really key. Like many people on Instagram, much more so than on Twitter or Facebook even, are selling something. Like Mm -hmm. they are selling a lifestyle or clothing, book, media, or they want to become somebody who will be invited to conferences, you know, to speak, or will start getting sponsored content where they get all this free stuff to sell. And it's the blending of Mm -hmm. a personal life with consumerism and self-marketing that feels a little icky. Yeah, and I've I've watched it happen to a number of people I know kind of before that particular like Instagram phenomenon and watching them sort of like mm-hmm. change on Instagram like you could mm. just sort of see their presence there beginning to like slowly but very clearly evolve in this sort of familiar direction where you're like, "Oh, okay. Now there are more like mm-hmm. quotes on pretty backgrounds and you know more I'm nervous you're talking about me (laughs) (laughs) just okay just just confront me directly (laughs) in a loving spirit no I'm not but I know but yeah I mean but you get it too like because you've you've sort of lived Mm -hmm. in that culture and you're trying to you know you've tried you've had a book out in the past and now you'll have another one and you know like you're trying to live in that world and I think it sucks you in even if it's like you don't like it and feel kind of icky about it because it's sort of like how else do you do it I feel like such a fish out of water when I log on to Instagram a lot of times because so much of the Christian content so to speak which I I need to engage for my job and I, I I want to know what's going on but I would say Instagram feels like a gendered space. Mm -hmm, It feels mm -hmm. much more geared toward women and women's subculture, Christian women's subculture. Not that there, of course, there are men on there like who use it and use it very well. But, and so much of the language is like presuming a kind of closeness or friendship or like, hey girl. I'm like, I don't know you and you don't know me. There's a presumed level of familiarity or even intimacy mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense to me, but it it must be connecting with people because so many of the people who use that kind of language and think of their ministry, so to speak, in like very relational terms are doing very, very well in that oh, space. Yeah. Like people respond to that appeal very strongly. So what happens to women who don't fit the Instagram influencer mold? Yeah, it's a good question. And you're a book publisher. So what happens to them, Caitlin? 
I mean, part of the reason I think people really in this space work hard to get the Instagram influencers is so that they can get book deals because there is like a big focus by publishers to get, you know, these people who have big social media followings Mm -hmm. as their next authors. Well, I have a chapter in my book on celebrity on the book publishing industry, and I am in a weird space because I am in the industry. Mm -hmm. I am writing a book within the industry, and also I critique some elements of the industry. And one of the major problems, as I see it, is that the question of platform has just come to dominate like who gets published and what gets published. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a hundred thousand followers on TikTok, but you cannot string together (laughs) words on a page, that's okay. You'll get a book deal. Uh Uh-huh. And a ghostwriter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll take care of that. Now, when I say yeah, we, yeah, yeah. not Brazos Press, <laughs> but you will find a publisher oh, yeah. out there who will make up for all of your deficiencies as a writer because <laughs> they just want the book with your name on it mm-hmm. and to sell it to your followers. Whereas somebody mm-hmm. who is an excellent writer who may just not be very good at Instagram is going to struggle, you know, like is going to struggle to get a foot in the door unless there are editors and agents who are saying like very intentionally, we have to change this numbers focused culture from the inside out. And so we need to take more risks on authors who don't have the big platform, but it is absolutely a problem in the industry. The other thing that it does, it doesn't do this exclusively, but I mean, Instagram is an aesthetic medium. So Mm -hmm. it also rewards and privileges people who are beautiful. And of course, you know, there's racial and class dynamics there too. Like it's promoting all of these like biases that kind of already exist for us. Well, even people who have the time to cultivate oh, social media following. Also true. <laughs> and I say this, true. of course, as someone who is very privileged in that regard, but or, you know, have the time to create a podcast, as it were. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> like you think about the time it takes, the time yeah. that it requires oh, to... Yeah cultivate and curate something like that. I mean, most people the world over are really just thinking, how do I make ends meet? (laughs) Like the time and energy. And I'm supposed to, I'm expected to have a kind of life or lifestyle that is aesthetically pleasing, you know, and a lot of people don't have that by the like Western white standards of what's beautiful. It just seems really exhausting to me. Maybe I'm not an influencer because I'm too lazy. (laughs) That's actually what I wanted to have this <laughs> podcast episode about. Like, I, I needed to confront you. No, it's that you have a life, Roxy. You have a full-time job. And also, it does seem exhausting. So it's complicated. There's good. There's bad. There's mm-hmm. ways to use Instagram well, ways to maybe use it poorly. And we wanted to sort of tease out some of these dynamics with our guest today, who has some experience in this, but also she honestly can just talk intelligently about anything. Hannah Anderson is the author of several books and lives with her family in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Women influencers, especially within the Christian space, have this 
unbelievable capacity to draw people together behind a mission, behind a personality, behind a cause. We'll be joined by Hannah right after we give a shout out to the organization that makes this all possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And we'll be back with a brand new season of Saved by the City this fall. So if you like what we're doing and want us to keep doing it, let us know by giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, girl. Before Roxy and I return for another season, I have a book that I think you are absolutely going to love and be obsessed with. It's called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Profits Are Hurting the Church. It'll be out August 16th in just a couple weeks. If you've ever wondered whether influencer culture is good or bad for the church, I think you might be interested. If you buy Celebrities for Jesus through Baker Bookhouse at bakerbookhouse.com, you get 40% off plus free shipping. That's 40% off plus free shipping. Take that, Jeff Bezos. Today's guest is Hannah Anderson, the author of several books, including most recently, All That's Good, Recovering the Lost Art of Discernment. She's also truly a great follow online, like maybe one of my favorite people I follow on Twitter. I learned so much from her and I just, it's like, she literally will just like chime in on anything that's happening and I will stop and read whatever the thread is, even if it's like 30 tweets long, because I'm like, I will be schooled right here. I will be taught something and I will think better about the world as a result. So follow her on Twitter at sometimes a light. Welcome, Hannah. Hannah, I'm really excited to have some of the conversations we've had off record, on record today, (laughs) as we think about the larger topic of Christian celebrity. So we want to talk to you today about the phenomenon of influencers, specifically Christian women influencers. And you're someone who has written books, spoken at conferences. You have a you know a great presence on social media. Do you think of yourself as an influencer? Why or why not? Do I think of myself as an influencer? Well, I prefer thought leader, Caitlin. But truly, when I think of influencer, I don't really actually believe I have influence over anyone. But I think the space I exist in is absolutely influencer space. And if I wanted to tap the influence I have over people... I could absolutely do that if that was a direction I felt like I wanted to go. I think of those two terms as gendered. Why, like when I hear thought leader, I think of a man on stage preaching or teaching. And when I think of influencer, I think of something that is fed to me on Instagram. So, so for me, the distinction is the difference between Instagram and Twitter. And so Mm -hmm. I spend a lot more time on Twitter and I find it an easier space to navigate because it's more about ideas and propositions and maybe words than Mm -hmm. Instagram. And Instagram feels a little more subtle and kind of lifestyle driven. But I do think it does come across as a little gendered. For me, the difference is kind of how the medium is affecting people, like how you're gaining access to people's worlds and why they give you credibility. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about a lot of who we might call women 
influencers, Christian influencers. What do you think are some of the hallmarks of influencers in that space? You know, why do you think women's influence in that space looks different or acts different than men's influence in that space? Well, I think it goes back to the way we think of influence, right? It's almost as if it's non-direct, it's indirect. It's not passive, but it's not explicit. And Mm -hmm. it's much more implicit. And so I think it does go back to that gendered kind of sense that, that women are allowed to affect a community as long as we don't know they're affecting it. <laughs> you know, mm. it's the it's the old joke about the man may be the head, but the woman is the neck and she can turn the head. And somehow that type of indirect or non-direct leadership or influence, as we would call it, to kind of, we I think what we're doing with that word influence is we're bringing it back to a place that we're comfortable with. We're talking about the way women can have power in a community or in a culture that doesn't really challenge our gendered notions of directness or explicit versus implicit uh, leadership. And in the Christian space in particular, maybe the evangelical space, it seems like the more direct and overt a woman's power is, especially in like a hierarchical institution or community, the more uncomfortable (laughs) evangelical Christians are with her exercising leadership. But influence is, if I understand you correctly, is a way for women to actually wield power. It's real power, but it is not top down and kind of direct and authoritative in the same way. Right. It's much more about social skills, soft skills, community building, Mm. you know, women influencers, especially within the Christian space, have this unbelievable capacity to draw people together behind a mission, behind a personality, behind a cause. And and it is a power, I think, that I have never seen men exert. It's the ability to get people together, to not just around themselves, but around this sense of purpose. And so I think what we're seeing is the power to form community. And often the way it's manifest is through almost lifestyle presentation. But I Mm -hmm. think what we see as lifestyle is really socialization or community. And people say, that's a life I want to be part of, Mm -hmm. or in some cases, a life I want to have. So besides like flowery scripts and long hair in sunlight in fields of flowers. Like what are some other hallmarks that you see regularly in like this sort of soft influence, lifestyle influence in Christian, especially in Christian spaces? I think family for sure. If you have kids and you can, you know, put forward this aesthetic of not perfect, but really, really good. Right. Per- you don't want to, you want to be approachable. Yeah. You want to be Right. You're vulnerable. approachable. You're accessible. We're not a perfect family. A curated um, mess. Yes. Curated mess. The whole effortless perfection, that sense of I woke up this way. It, it says to people, this is attainable. 
you know, you can come into my space, you can be here, it's accessible, you can enter into it, and maybe you can have this life too. And so it it does, you know, have a strong emphasis on beauty, on um, a well-curated home, if you have children and husband, that they would be present. I, I think that's a major difference between the way you see male influence, especially online, happening you don't see children and spouses playing as much a role in the credibility of the speaker if he's a man. They're there and, you know, there'll be a celebration of that. But obviously we've got lots of subculture questions there about domestica and the role of women. But it's also kind of this signal of community building again. So because mm. the family has a microcosm of community, you've built your home, you've built this community. And now you're building out from that, your online community or beyond that. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're describing is like 100% true. And also just having it restated so clearly and plainly, it reminds me that it annoys me. And I think the reason it annoys me is because it feels like, you know, if I wanted to be an influencer, given my current life stage and the contours of my life, I could not be. Because I am single, I have, you know, so much of my sense of identity and vocation is really about professional work where I do exercise kind of direct authority. I like Twitter more than Instagram. And I just don't have like the domestic and family oriented, quote unquote, branding to offer. And I imagine that a lot of women you know, have something really important to offer the church, but feel limited by the roles that both kind of theology and the marketplace put on women and say, this is what you have to be if you want to be, quote unquote, successful in this space. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I gained a ton of confidence in my ability to stand before women once I figured out how to curl my hair in beachy waves. <laughs> and It's kind of a joke, but it isn't. Like, I put a ton of time and effort into my work, into writing, into thinking, into speaking. And then I have these moments of panic knowing that I have to stand up in this cultural space. And in order to be heard for all the work that I've done over here in my speaking and my writing, I also Mm -hmm. have to present a certain cultural aesthetic. And that's actually very, very hard for me. There is a different level of authority that comes in credibility, if I can pull that off, that I don't think is the same for men. Like, I think we all love a male absent-minded professor, and we we don't give the same credibility to a woman who's kind of absent-minded and has mm-hmm. that same aesthetic. Well, and it strikes me that you know, these are just technological internet versions of dynamics that are like very old. We just moved it online. And and even when we're talking about like Instagram versus Twitter, like there's ways that that is just echoing like past ways that women gathered and networked and spoke to each other. So you set up the idea of men influencing other men or men influencing more broadly. And when you invert that, there's a way women influence women, but there's a way that women influence men as well. And they 
end up having to do twice as much work in my estimation. Mm -hmm. They have to maintain everything that they are doing to influence women. They have to maintain the beauty and the attractiveness and, you know, all the credentialing in domestica. And then on top of that, they also have to be really smart and professional and direct and be able to engage men in a way that men feel comfortable, especially as more women are in seats of power and governance, you have this new emerging female leader who can argue on the House of Representatives floor for her bill and then go home and do a Instagram live cooking, right? Mm-hmm. So so there mm-hmm. is this merging of, you know, women do have to do both in right. some ways. Mm-hmm. I think for me, and I I'm going to bravely speak here for Caitlin too. Okay. <laughs> you know, we're not married. We don't have kids. We, as Caitlin said, like we've, you know, our, our lives are centered more around our professional work. For me, I can be very tempted to, you know, sort of take a certain familiar track of like, okay, so those are the better goods. Like it's, it's more worldly valuable or it's, you know, it, to, to be the kind of woman who has a great career and then actually to like discount the, the, the traditional work of women. And part of what I heard mm-hmm. you saying is that there is a lot of good in the way that women traditionally work in terms of how they build community, in terms of how they have relationships, even in terms of how they've approached influence. And so I kind of want to maybe just go back to that and talk a little bit more about like what is good about this world of the way the, the world women have built in certain ways of how they influence and of how they build community and like what can we learn from that? Yeah, I think your your question is exactly the right one to say, you know, in this moment in time, we have these kind of traditional norms that that women have throughout history kind of invested in and it's created a gendered understanding of women's work you know it's all it's been more social or community building and yet there are also different pathways and different vocations for women it is not exclusive to these things if we look though historically one of the things i can't get away from is we are living in a world where women can control their fertility in a way they didn't before and so if you aren't living in a modern world part of the reason that women build community it's because it's what their bodies do in cases where they are married or sexually active. It's just what their bodies do. And so I think Mm. there's this, it's not this esoteric, like women have all these soft skills that men don't have. It's that their bodies are creating community and then sustaining these micro communities. And then that builds out a different set of concerns, questions, approaches to how to be human, how to flourish. And so I think the beauty and the value of that is that if we honor that, it's going to help all of us, even women who aren't inclined that way or who aren't in those spaces. And I see that as just a superpower. I really do. I think like all power 
It can be manipulated. It can be used to alienate and ostracize. We can see how women use that to cut other people out or they want the status quo so they don't want their communities disrupted. And so sometimes very bad and evil things can happen and women can be part of it happening because we want to Mm. maintain our communities. But it is a giftedness. And I think if we can honor it as a giftedness, And also recognize that we're not less female if we can't do it, or we're not called to it. If God has not placed us in a space to actively be forming community, whether it's micro communities of family or whether it's on church staff, if we're not called to that, that doesn't make us less women or less female, but it does maybe allow us to celebrate what is happening and see it as a good and see it as valuable. And in my case, I try to convince the men who often have more direct power to honor it and see it as valuable as well. Mm -hmm. So I have a chapter in my book on celebrity on the Christian book publishing industry and some of the weirder and potentially unethical aspects of it. But in An early reader of the book asked why I didn't devote more time to the conference circuit, which is kind of in tandem with Christian book publishing and the two industries feed each other. But I was reticent to, well, I was way past my deadline, so I didn't have time to do anything with it. But I also was reticent to critique the women's conference circuit, at least because when we've had conversations in the past about women influencers and authority, it can come across to people as like sexist or mean. Like it's a lot easier to critique Mark Driscoll (laughs) than it is to critique elements of something like the if gathering, which yes. So and the fact that she stopped right there. (laughs) you know, kind of signals how hard this conversation is to critique women's spaces or to be women critiquing women's spaces too. Um, there, There is this inherent sense of we don't go there. And I think what happens is if women see something they'd like change, they just go change it. They just do something different or build better. But the kind of direct critique of other women um, in the influencer space, in the publishing space, conference space, that is just a no-go. Like, that's where angels fear to tread kind of territory. So I absolutely agree with you about so, the, the so space. I, I, I guess we should but why, stop there. Why is it? Yeah, no, I think, it it's, I think it's really important to, to speak about it because I think it goes back to this question of community, right? So if a huge part of what's being built is these tight communities and the bonds between people. If you step up and say, wait a minute, there is the potential for to for you to be seen as breaking the bonds of community and breaking the unity. And so in order to keep the unity and keep the bonds of community, we will take that person, that woman who's objecting, and we will place her outside of it. And she Mm -hmm. will get ostracized and she will get kind of seen as mean or personal or why are you so uh, critical? And and it very quickly is... it can never be seen as a critique of ideas or a philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's always a personal critique. 
So that's, I mean, that's a huge risk that I think it's almost impossible in this space to critique something and say, wait, 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 I'm not critiquing this person. I'm critiquing Mm -hmm. this idea or this approach. Mm -hmm. That distinction is very, very hard to communicate. If your primary model of what it means to be a Christian woman of significance or kind of purpose or ministry power in the world is to become an influencer, people who are definitely not ready for that or gifted for that are then put on a path that narrows, I think, our imaginations of what Christian women or what any women can be and do in the world. And so some of my concern in this conversation is just bigger questions of calling and vocation and how women's imaginations are shaped for how their gifts could be used in the world. And I agree with you 100,000%. Um, I'm not a mathematician. So the... the <laughs> we're, we're uncomfortable with numbers, but we just like feel it in our guts. <laughs> yes, that's right. There's some big number out there. <laughs> But I was talking to my brother the other day and we were talking about my work. And I said, you know, I've been doing publishing for 10, 12 years. And it was really the only option available to me. Like if I wanted to kind of develop a ministry or a vocation of my own, this was the route I had to go. But at some point I've come to realize that if I just put myself in the channels that were available in especially evangelical publishing, it only has a certain end. There's like only one thing that you become if you go up that ladder. And so over the last few years, I've been thinking a lot about this was a great access point to get started, but it's not going to deliver me to where I actually envision my vocation and where I want to be long term. So I'm starting to have to build out laterally and say publishing is great, but I need to be doing other things as well. I need to find spaces of institutional, you know, partnership. I need to, you know, go back to school. I need to build Mm -hmm. this out because Mm -hmm. publishing will only deliver you to one vocation. And that may not be the vocation that God has for you. And just to be really clear, what is that one vocation? Is it essentially like you're a best-selling author and that's how you make your bread and butter and you just have to keep. Yeah, I think there's a couple things that happen. Like you kind of crystallize whether you want to or not, because publishing is a product, right? And you're Mm -hmm. delivering to an audience base. And once you have been successful, that becomes its own trap in many ways, because then your audience wants the same thing. And so it kind of can, if you're not careful, stunt your personal growth because you're always putting out what they have come to love. So that's one thing that I saw, like, like Mm -hmm. this is going to commodify my own spiritual development and process. And I'm not going to have space to grow with God the way I need to necessarily. So because it's a product Mm -hmm. and you want to keep the brand recognizable and known and predictable, that can be attention. I think as well, like, because it's outside of the church, it's parachurch, you do end up having to say, well, how much more can I sell? Like, can I sell more mm-hmm. books? Can I get on the conference circle? Can I develop, you know, webinars or whatever else that becomes a product? And so you end up by necessity 
being on your own because there's no way to, you can have a board, but at the end of the day, the ministry would always be Hannah Anderson. And and quite frankly, I want more partnership than that. Mm -hmm. I I don't, I want to be engaged in spaces where I can be very collaborative and we're all building something together. And I don't think publishing is necessarily going to deliver that. Well, I think you actually navigate this really well, Hannah, even though I think of you firstly as a thought leader, (laughs) as someone who leads with thoughts and ideas. And we both just thank you so much for sharing many great ideas in this conversation today. I've been glad to talk with you both. Yes, thank you. So one of the things that Hannah said that I've really been thinking about she just sort of offhandedly mentioned like part of what Instagram culture can do is create this environment where you feel like you're commodifying your spiritual growth. And I've been thinking about that a lot since then because I think that that is right on. And as I think about sort of maybe part of what makes me the most squeamish about sort of Christian celebrity culture meets Instagram influencer culture is how much you kind of have to show some level of progress. Mm. I do think that that level of constant public scrutiny of you forces you to sort of produce some kind of like, I have to be insightful Mm. about this. I have to have had some kind of really like spiritually significant moment Mm -hmm. this week that I can write about or today that I can write about. It's like it has to be happening minute by minute, like day by day that you're delivering something to people. And I think that's a pressure point to me, you know, and even sometimes when I read people's posts, I'm like, did this really happen? Is this really how you feel? Or was like, do you just need your insight moment of the week? You know? (laughs) Yes. I have wondered that myself. I think part of what Hannah has helped us identify is a maybe a commodification of moments that I think at the end of the day, we would say, if you've had this truly powerful spiritual moment, maybe part of keeping it powerful is to not share it. Like not everything has to be shared or consumed. And also not everything has to be turned into a lesson. I'm not a complete cynic about it. I have read beautiful posts on Instagram that have really moved me. I think it's just feeling that there's pressure there Mm -hmm. to do that on some, to to like deliver on a regular Mm -hmm. basis in order to, again, elevate your platform. And I think that's, you know, that's where I question. And that's when I start to feel like, oh, is this real or is this Mm. like a thing you feel like you have to Mm -hmm. do in order to keep the momentum going? Yeah, I actually really appreciate when influencers, quote unquote, like take breaks. (laughs) Because then I just feel like Mm. you're a normal person. We all need breaks. We all need we all need to just live our lives without thinking about creating content from our lives. And then I feel like when they do post it's not just to feed the machine. It's because they really kind of genuinely have something insightful to share. I clearly have so much ambivalence about this. And this part of like, you barely see me on Instagram. And I have, I I carry some sense of guilt over that in a way of like, I should be doing this, not just like 
professionally, but because I have a lot of friends on there who care about me, who will ask regularly, Mm. like, you know, how are you doing? I wish we saw from you more, you know, and I feel so much ambivalence around how to use it anymore. Well, I think those friends who are wondering about what's going on in your life should probably listen to our podcast. Because you actually share, you know, not infrequently about things that you are doing and thinking. So just going to put in another plug. Sounds right. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.